Curious about how technology is changing food? From food policy to cultured meat to faux meat and alternative foods, Larissa Zimbarov explores it all in her new book, Technically Food. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Larissa Zimbaroff, and she is a journalist who works in that sweet spot, uh, the intersection of food and technology, which I think is really great. And she's written a terrific book called Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. And we're going to talk to her today. I'm looking forward to it. Very much welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. It's wonderful to be here. So tell me, how is it that you got into this intersection there? How did your interests collide between food and technology? Yeah. You know, I lived in the Bay Area for a long time uh, and I actually thought I would never leave the Bay Area. Then I got laid off twice, but I worked in high tech. And once the second time around of layoffs hit, I decided I needed a new career and I moved to New York. I moved to New York and I got my MFA in creative writing. And that was when I started really noticing and realizing how important food was to me but I have this technology background and I started discovering incubators and accelerators and food tech startups. And I started following them in in New York. And when I would come home to the Bay area, I would find them here and just, it just sort of took off. I can imagine too, that there aren't that many writers in that area, in that, in that place, you know? Yeah. Back then I had it. Uh, now there's a, little, <laughs> there's a little more competition now, but I, I like to think I, I was there um, pretty much in the first wave. I was, I'd say it was about 2015 when I started d- dabbling in it and getting more and more in, in deep into it and really making it my thing. Now, I understand that I have a law degree and uh, when I decided I wasn't going to practice anymore and I was involved with food, I realized that that was also one of those places where there was a little bit of a vacuum and uh, that cross-section of food and law was really a a good place to- Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel thankful that I didn't go the chefy route. I like that. I like eating that and knowing about where to go eat when I visit towns and cities, but I think a food tech makes more sense for me. Yes, I totally understand. So I was really excited that you have written this book, which is a great book, by the way. But one of the things that I really love about it is that it really is about the technology of all of these new foods, which I think is really great because often writers write only about the food part of it and not about the technology that's involved in it. So I found that to be really satisfying, but also it scared me. And this is something I want to ask you about because it felt very much like in some ways it wasn't food. It was created food. 
So I didn't see it as that, I didn't see the food as that different from all the crazy food-like products like Cheese Whiz and other things that are really just technologically created. Did you feel that way? Am I wrong to have that feeling? You're absolutely right to have that feeling. You know, many of these startups are are mission-based and they're really looking to solve the problem of our climate. You know, will we run out of water? Will we have global warming? Will the temperatures heat up? I mean, we we already know the signs are yes, right? California, where I live, is in a drought. We have fires every, every summer and, you know, populations are hungry. We already see all of these problems. And so these startups aren't actually putting real food or human health first. They're putting how to solve for the climate first. And I, I applaud that. However, I, I want to believe that there is a solution that marries both of these things. Like we can create real foods and we can do it both for the climate and for our health. And that, that was a big reason to writing the book. Are these any good for me? And, you know, are these, are these delicious? Uh, Who are these startups and what is the technology? And it is a little scary. Uh, I think everyone should be concerned about where the climate is headed. And I think these startups are really focused on solving that problem, but it is the solutions they're coming up with are a bit, um, you know, disconcerting at times. Yes. So did you did you come across any that you felt were not going sort of that kind of skewed way? Absolutely. One of the areas I'm most excited about is how I started my book, both with algae and with mycelium. Mycelium might be the one I'm most excited about because it, I think it will translate to food much quicker than algae. Mm-hmm. So mycelium is the root structure underground that we know the mushroom, which is the fruiting body from the mycelium. But what people are doing is they're growing it in tanks, this mycelium thread-like uh, network that becomes like a protein that's stitched together. It doesn't take a lot to grow and it's pretty simple when it comes out and it's protein with a little carbohydrate. It doesn't have anything bad in it and it doesn't need a lot of post-processing and post-processing processing is what we might consider food processing or ultra processing. It doesn't need a lot to become food. So it has a pretty clean label and there there's a company making bacon out of it. That's in California. There's one in Boulder. There's one in Sacramento. So there's a bunch of people kind of tinkering with this idea. There's a new one making seafood out of Chicago. So I think that it has a lot of exciting, this fermentation narrative has, has a lot of excitement to it. And fermentation itself isn't new, but they are tapping it for different uses. So is anybody actually saying, well, we can grow this, say, mycelium, and let's see what it tastes like without actually trying to make it taste like bacon or make it taste like seafood. There, there are people doing that. In fact, most of the people using mycelium or koji or fungi to make a protein are actually toying with different things. So Paul Shapiro out of the Better Meat Co. in Sacramento, he's making a steak, but he has also just told me he's making crab cakes. So he is, he is creating this protein and seeing, well, where will it lend itself? And then letting, letting 
food makers come up with what they want to use it for. Um, but we are in this mimicry stage that if we're going to recreate bacon, like it has to taste as great as bacon or exactly. as, oh my God, as bacon. And I like to say I have a very low bacon bar. I don't mind if it's smoky and fatty, like it doesn't need to be pig, pork, bacon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but mimicry is still in the phase that we're in right now in food tech. And I guess that's the part that I find the most alarming because if I have to choose between bacos and bacon, I want to choose bacon because I feel like it's as much as it is processed, it is less processed than bacos. And so I guess I'm thinking, okay, if mycelium is really fungi, then maybe we use it to make stroganoff or something without beef in it because the fungi or the mycelium has enough protein to substitute for that. Rather than make it into the the beef chunks that would be in the stroganoff. That's the part where I can't make the leap. It starts to scare me when it's like a fake whatever, you know. Yeah, I think we're, we're not there yet, but we're going to get to that point maybe in um, five plus years where we no longer have to do the one for one analog, you know, close your eyes and I'm going to replace your beef with this beef made out of mycelium. And I think that once we do do that, once we unleash sort of the, the need to, to match what we have right now, that people's creativity can really like skyrocket and we can allow plants to be plants, but even better. Right. Well, that's what I'm sort of holding out for. Um, like another one of my, my pet peeves is, you know, my uh, grandmother is from Palermo and they drink a lot of almond uh, milk there. So she used to make almond milk on a regular basis. And so that was what I thought of as almond milk growing up. There was this stuff that my grandmother made. That must have tasted so much better than almond milk today. Oh, th- totally, totally. Yeah. Plus the, this idea that you have to match the mouthfeel of cow's milk by adding all these other things to it. That's the part that makes you feel like, well, if I'm going to drink this because it's healthier for me or it's healthier for the planet, Let's just make it taste good (laughs) and not mimic something. Then you feel like I'm giving something up instead of saying here, this is delicious. Or something new. Or something new. Exactly. Exactly. I think startups are so focused on the climate and for figuring out how to change people's habits. Mm -hmm. So they're focused on the past, right? And so when they start to focus on the future, I think we might see something more exciting. Well, it it kind of reminds me of when there was a a lot of manipulation of of fruits and vegetables to make them have a, a longer shelf life, but be willing to give up flavor in order to let something, you know, be as hard as a ping pong ball and, and sit on the shelf in the grocery store for six weeks before it starts to deteriorate. And Of course, everybody was complaining, say that tomatoes tasted terrible, even though tomatoes are wonderful. And the scientists were much more interested in this this 
helping uh, the industry, so to speak, instead of worrying about taste. Because if somebody manipulated a tomato and made it taste even better, I wouldn't be upset. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Dan Barber likes to say we have a vaccine and it's delicious food. And it's that flavor and taste is how you know foods are good. Yes. Yes. I, I totally, totally agree with that. So what was the thing that you thought was the most startling, the most um, sort of unusual? You know, I think it's this fermentation of single cell organisms mm -hmm. that can become protein. Mm -hmm. So they're only a little bit in my book, but there are people making protein from carbon dioxide in the air, right? Uh -huh. So their, their mm -hmm. idea is that they're going to capture emissions, you know, say from chemical companies and then turn it into a protein, right? And they're going to, they're going to use bacteria to, to sort of eat it and turn it into something else, protein. And then that protein will be eventually a dried powder. And that dried powder will eventually become say a piece of fake chicken. That is very hard for me to wrap my, my head around. There's a new one that it's not in my book, but people are looking into ways to do the same thing, but eat up plastic that's bad for the environment and turn that plastic into protein that they're going to feed us, which is like, <laughs> it just sounds so mind boggling, right? You're going to create protein out of plastics that are harmful for the environment, but they're going to be good for me and you. So that yeah, kind of stuff's really hard to, to think about. That's very hard for me to accept also. Yeah. It, yeah. It reminds me of those horror stories of making soy sauce with hair trimmings that <gasps> have been collected from beauty salons because you just need the protein. It doesn't oh need God. to be from a bean, like a soybean or something like that. I can't even imagine. Any source. And I just thought, oh my God, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a chemistry professor friend who always likes to say garbage in, garbage out, right? Uh -huh. It's um, it's not going to be improved. And it just goes back to you, what you and I want to see, which is, you know, kind of if, if people are tackling the sort of food tech innovations of creating cultured meat in the labs and creating protein from plastic, okay, go for it. But let's also get people on the other side. Let's also get people looking at soil. Let's get people focused on our agriculture and, you know, how can we grow things better? How can we give back to the environment when we are growing out of the earth? So you, you mentioned cultured meat. That one is another one that um, I think is kind of weird. Um, so have you ever tasted it? Yeah, so I have. Tell me about it because I'm endlessly curious about that. <laughs> yeah, um, I've had both a chicken nugget. So, uh, you know, kind of a fried breaded kind of mushed chicken product that you would never know what it was, but you kind of don't really know what a chicken nugget is regardless. Anyway, right. And there are a lot of people making the chicken nugget or remaking the chicken nugget. So you can get it out of almost any protein you want, including cultured chicken cells. So I've had that. It was, you know, I love condiments, ketchup, mustard, barbecue sauce. So I'm always happy to sort of dip something in something else. Right. And then I had, I did get the opportunity to have plain chicken with upside foods, which used to be called Memphis meats. And they're in my book. And I tasted the chicken and 
it was it was thin and it was small. It was a very slender piece of chicken, but it did have the mouthfeel, the texture that I was looking for. It didn't quite have the flavor yet, but it had the texture. Now, I'm of the opinion, I don't, I'm not vegan. I'm not vegetarian. I'm mostly plant-based mm-hmm. and I'm of the opinion that you want to eat as much variety as possible. And you want to keep your mind open to trying things. So sure. for the, for the book, I ate everything mm-hmm. and I do mostly eat everything, um, in moderation and with as much variety, but the cultured products, you know, they're not bad yet. I have, I had Wagyu, a little bit of Wagyu. I had some elk sausage and bison, uh-huh. um, some lamb, like a merguez lamb that, and the flavor for the flavor for those was, was very good. The texture was not there yet. So some have achieved texture and some have achieved flavor. Mm-hmm. No one has achieved both. And everybody is very far from any kind of scale beyond like one restaurant. Right. So we're not going to have cultured chicken nuggets for a while in a fast food restaurant or anything like that. Correct. We've got it. We've got, they're selling it in Singapore by a company that's in the Bay area called just, they're selling a chicken nugget at a kind of a high scale upper-class restaurant, a chicken nuggets. And that's it so far. Okay. Wow. Well, that that's, I have to say, that is the thing that I find the most kind of out there is, is the cultured from a cell kind of um, product. But, you know, I agree with you that we have to be open-minded about this. I do think that the climate problem is a problem that we have to address. And it's not just about, oh, does it taste good? Although that's a big part of it. We seem to be, as Americans, historically willing to eat food that doesn't taste good for our health, you know, and we have a long history of chew your food a hundred times and you have to eat this or that because it doesn't matter if it tastes good. But I, I also know that uh, sometimes we've been wrong. My grandparents would tell me the stories of, they were from Sicily and they would tell stories of being told not to eat tomatoes because, or eat garlic and all of these things, which were supposedly going to make you hypersexual as well as make you not be able to think straight and all kinds of things like that. And it was better to have white food like potatoes and rice and cream and milk and all of that sort of thing. And olive oil was really bad for you. You should use butter and just all of that. And I just think that it's very interesting that they were so happy to eat their own food because they missed home, that they totally ignored it. But it was supposedly based on science and they were, people were pushing them because they believed in their hearts that they were helping people eat better. And the fact that it didn't necessarily taste very good was basically irrelevant because who eats for, for taste? Everyone should eat for health, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we've been wrong many times, like with the snack wells era of like no fat, which meant that we got sugar or all the diet sweeteners, which some have been shown to be not so great for us. You know, I think that 
what my one of my concerns now is that we actually don't have the research into these new foods. So I am, you know, sometimes I am signing a document that says, you know, <laughs> this, you know, who knows what will happen to you <laughs> in, in much more legal fashion. But, um, you know, we don't really know what these foods will mean for us. Like, what will they mean for our microbiome? What will they mean for our bodies and right. our, you know, nutritional selves? I think that, we will have people to say, like Bill Gates said that all the first world countries should be eating synthetic meat. Now he met both plant-based and cultured, but there's a lot of people out there pushing for these new, new foods and these new um, kind of ways of eating that will mean that we each have to be our own best advocate. And that means learning a lot more these days. And in the future, we'll have to learn a lot more. And you just wonder whether we might be better off eating more insects or something like that, which is actually a real thing as opposed to something that's manufactured. And so people eat insects already. So it's not something that is totally out there. And we have an insectarium here in New Orleans and you can get brownies with ground up worms in them and they taste okay. They're not great, but it's a brownie and, you know, it's got a lot of sugar and chocolate. It's hard to feel badly when you're eating it, you know, Um, but uh, fried uh, grasshoppers and ants and things like that. I mean, people already eat those things. But so I'm going to jump in here because we actually don't need more protein. So we actually don't really need to add bugs to our diet in any kind of major way. Sure. A brownie here, a fried grasshopper there, but we, we don't, this, this sort of quest for protein, this like Uh we must have more protein to feed more people. We do make enough food already. It just doesn't get to everybody that needs it and bugs. Sure. We could, more people could incorporate into their diets. I see bugs as being a great vehicle for feeding fish and aqua farms or feeding cows in some fashion. I don't see that we need more protein. What we need is more fiber and what we get fiber from are whole plants and fruits and vegetables and whole grains. And so in your, in your studies and your research, do you feel that people are putting the time into fruits and vegetables that they are into protein? Because I agree with you. It seems like everything is about protein. Yeah. You know, like the USDA is doing research into peas and pulses and how to find like the the varieties that have more protein than others, right? We're seeing Mm -hmm. pea protein kind of formulated into everything. And I I have a chapter on pea protein in my book because I think it's so important. So that is, that is exciting, but they are doing it to find more protein. So I think that the research into plants and fruits and vegetables is not as much as the the research into protein and the money being funneled into these like investor money that's being funneled into startups to help them turn plastic into protein and help them turn carbon dioxide into protein. It seems, seems to be more, it's certainly what the people, what we're talking about. It's certainly the headlines and media and, um, you know, the news cycles are focused on what startups are getting. Well, it does make sense if their emphasis is really on the planet 
um, that they would want to use up this plastic that we have too much of anyway. So it's a way to get rid of the plastic and then maybe solve another problem at the same time. But at the same time, the idea of eating plastic is just not very appealing. <laughs> it's not, it's not. I mean, it'd be so exciting if people were looking at how to make a better carrot. My last chapter, I interview about 20 plus people and ask them what's on our dinner plate in 20 mm-hmm. years. And mm-hmm. You know, one of the people I interviewed talked about the carrot being more like a Ferrari that they should be focused on things like vegetables and making better vegetables rather than figuring out how to strip down a vegetable to turn it into something else. Right, right. And uh, let's keep talking about carrots for a second. I mean, it would be really interesting if they would work with carrots just genetically, not not talking about making it into a GMO, but just through regular genetics saying that, okay, this carrot normally takes 75 days to come to its um, maturity so that you can pick it and sell it. But if you could shave off five days or 10 days from that by actually picking fast growing carrots and doing something with those so that you could have two entire crops in the same season instead of one, then you would really be doing something because you would have a lot of carrots. Absolutely. And there is some um, definite interest and excitement um, about seeds being uh, bred for indoor vertical farms where they are looking to speed them up or use less light or less water and have a higher yield and a better flavor. So there, there is some excitement there, but I don't see it happening fast or as fast for the soil, for the earth, for traditional farming. But there is, there is some excitement there. I think um, as our son is different, you know, now to like when your grandparents were growing anything, mm-hmm. it's very different. So we need different, we need different plants for right. it. Right. And we may actually have some of those plants already and some seed some seed saver place that um, some bank somewhere that we just don't even know what its properties are because it hasn't been grown in so very long. Absolutely. Uh, We really don't, we really don't know a whole lot about that. Yeah. It seems there's just, there's so much technology and there's a, a tendency, I believe, to believe that technology can solve every single problem. And I just wonder if we could use technology to rethink the way we approach food so that maybe we don't think that we need to have as much protein or whatever, so that we're making a cultural shift instead of using technology on the food itself. That might be an interesting thing to try to do. (laughs) Well, absolutely. One of the things that we need is to actually rethink our American diet. So if we were to take what you just said and like apply it to the American diet, what does it need? What are we doing wrong? Where can we go from here? What are we doing wrong? We're eating processed, packaged, convenient foods. What are they recreating? Processed, packaged, convenient foods. And so we just, I, and we're selling it to other countries, right? We're taking our, our, our not great American diet. You know, you could just look at our radio ratios of cardiovascular disease and obesity They're They've gone up since the pandemic, especially, and we're just taking that and sending it out to other countries. And so if we were to rethink how we eat and what, what is best for us, we could, we could really be in a different place with, with technology, with the help of innovation and these startups. Right. 
that would be a great sort of reallocation of technology to something that would maybe actually solve a, a problem <laughs> instead of using technology to solve a non-existent problem, which I kind of think we are um, using a lot of technology to, to do that. Um, and well, well, the climate is still an issue and we still, I still want to bring it back to that. That's, you know, kind of what they're looking at, mm -hmm. but um, it, if we were to prioritize things a little different, I think mm -hmm. we could be in a different, we could be headed in a different direction perhaps. Right. And, and also use technology to distribute food in a different way so that those people who really are hungry are able to have a decent amount of food. Yeah. And have more people looking at refrigeration needs. Like how can we reduce that? Like, just like, as they did with the vaccine, right. Some of them needed to be, you know, so cold that they were really complicated. And so how to make vaccines that didn't need that. Right. How can we apply that to food uh, supply chain? How can we apply that to food? Having more local solutions will mm -hmm. enable a, a better, stronger, more resilient supply chain. So if we were to tackle different things, instead of just like climate, 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 how to replace meat, right? We might have a different, a different kind of landscape. Right. Because those things are going to affect the climate too, in a positive way, if we solve those problems. So it's still about climate. It's just not so directly about climate. And so I, I think that that that's where the disconnect is that you have to kind of think all the way to the end to realize, yes, it also affects the climate and, and could be part of the climate solution. Um, Absolutely. Tra transportation is one of the biggest culprits for, for climate issues. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here. I, I can't even begin to tell you how much I learned from your book and how readable it is for okay. such a technical book. So that I felt like, all right, even if I don't always understand the science, I felt like I had enough of an understanding to kind of figure out where it could go. But at the same time, um, I, I felt that I, it was readable and, and even entertaining in a way that I almost didn't expect. It wasn't, I didn't expect it because it was you or anything, just because of the subject matter. And so you really did a good job. And I really thank you for this book. I think you probably need to write one once a year because as the science changes, that way we can keep it up. But it was really, really a good read. And thank I appreciated you, that. Thank you. It's so great to hear. You know, I was worried when I pitched the title to my publisher, but they they in instantly embraced it. And so I'm, I'm so glad. Well, good for them. They made a really good choice. So great. thanks for being with us. I Thank appreciate you. It. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.